Hot take. Sometimes athletes can make the best hires. They're disciplined, used to coaching, and have an understanding of calm under pressure. And today's guest on higher learning is no exception. I'm excited that we got to talk to Jeff Griffiths, the CEO of Built Visible, an industry-leading specialist search content and digital PR agency. He's also a former professional rugby athlete who played at some of the top clubs in the UK. Today, Jeff and I talk about the importance of building high-performing teams, the secret sauce behind one of the UK's largest independent organic agencies, hiring philosophy, and what the transition from being a pro rugby athlete to a business executive looks like. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know you're going to too. Can't wait for you to listen to this episode with Jeff. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we are with Jeff Griffiths, CEO at Built Visible. Jeff, how are you doing today? Oz, yeah, I'm good. Thank you, mate. Thanks for ever so much for having me along. I uh, really appreciate it. How are you going? I'm doing great, man. It is mid-afternoon here. It looks like it's evening out there in the UK. Uh, I'm really excited for this podcast. I'm, 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 you have such a different and unique journey. I'm so excited to get into it. Yeah, no, I'm excited. It's, it's dark and dingy over here in the UK, but um, yeah, no, excited to get into it. Um, yeah, like I said, thanks so much for having me. Not in your background, man. Your background's looking really ambient and really nice. So whatever, if it's dark and dingy outside, you've got it going on inside, man. So let's start, let's start here. I wanted to learn a little bit. You are a CEO, you're a founder. I want to learn a little bit about Built Visible. What is this space? How did you get into this space? What is kind of the ultimate vision for Built Visible? Yeah, so Built Visible, uh, the way I always describe us, we're an independent specialist digital marketing agency. So um, we're based in London, HQ there, 70 people, got a global client roster, typically in sort of very high competition verticals. Um, and yeah, we're essentially an SEO data and content agency. So um, we kind of, you know, love pulling together as a team, sort of really united behind like the power and the possibility of digital. It's kind of a, you know, such a fast moving space and particularly anything organic is really, really hard and difficult and requires collaboration, vision, strategy, teamwork to, to get it done. So um, yeah, our whole thing is around sort of, you know, creating meaningful connection between people, communities and brands through the things that we do, which is data, SEO and content. Do you have a specialization in terms of industry or size of company or is it all across the board? Yeah, typically anything high competition. So I do a lot of retail, so e-commerce, a lot of travel, financial services, B2B. So this the, the really hard stuff um, where, yeah, it's you need to sort of grind out your victories and um, think a bit differently in order to get leverage on your competitors. Um, so, yeah, it's a great space, super fun, always changing. Um, just absolutely love it. Yeah, I love it. And listen, if you had kind of a standard story where you went to school for marketing and then, you know, worked for an agency and then decided to open up your own business, I mean, I'd be interested, but not as interested as I am by the actual story because your journey is very unique. And and when we were talking, you were a professional rugby player. Is that true? Yeah, I was. Yeah, for my sins. Yeah, yeah. So I in, in terms of like how that happened, so I was a professional rugby player and I, I kind of just didn't didn't really make it um, and and kind of made the second tier of English rugby over here. So it's not forever money. There's no forever money in rugby. Didn't really make it to the big time, but made it enough that I could be a full-time athlete for a few years. Um, and yeah, just realized I wasn't going to make it uh, at just about the right time, sort of 24, 25. And that's when I began my kind of transition into, um, into sport, into, uh, sorry, into digital marketing. Um, just a, a thing that I sort of found a, found a bit of a passion for. Um, and yeah, sort of fast forward 
12 or so years uh, and I've joined Built Visible, bought the founder out um and uh yeah we're kind of going from strength to strength so it was a bit of a, a- yeah I'm, I'm not gonna let you gloss over that journey that quickly we're gonna we're gonna dive deeper into that i want to learn more so i want to ask you this first i'm reading this book called range okay and it's kind of a counter to malcolm gladwell's idea of ten thousand hours of specialization so they're used in the book they talk about tiger woods right and how he was obsessed singularly with golf and did everything around golf to the point where he became the world's greatest golfer, right? And then they talked about Roger Federer, who had a very different background. His parents were actually in tennis, in coaching, but they never pushed him to specialize in that sport. And in fact, he excelled at basketball and soccer and across the board, a bunch of different sports. So I'm interested for you, were you a multidiscipline athlete growing up or were you focused on rugby from the beginning as you kind of grew and ascended to the professional career? I think it's important to make sure that I'm not compared with Tiger Woods or Roger Federer in terms of my abilities, but <laughs> I think, um, no, I was sort of a multidiscipline athlete growing up. So I was kind of um, like a jack of all trades, master of none, really, when it came to sports. Um, kind of ended up that my rugby career was a bit like that as well. I was very flexible, could play multiple positions. Um, but I'm, I'm a massive believer in, 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 I guess, the point of the book will be range, right, in terms of having a bit of a breadth. Um, not only that, it's kind of I've got a real passion for working with athletes that are still in sport, looking to transition out in terms of, you know, the more rounded and holistic you kind of approach life, ironically the less you focus on the thing you think you're trying to perform in sometimes the better you're going to be at that thing so you know developing more rounded sort of human beings than just athletes that hammer the the same thing all the time um can sort of really pull you know really bring more sporting performance out and it obviously sets you up for for later life as well so i'm definitely in that same same school i reckon of, of range and breadth yeah yeah, I think I think what's interesting about that is the book talks about how when there's something like chess or golf that is kind of a singular endeavor and you can, can kind of control the math of it or the formula formulations or computations of it, that's one thing. But when you get into anything that has, you know, changing variables at any given time and you have to be, uh, be able to be adaptive to that, that's where that that kind of linear focus doesn't work as well and we're having kind of a wider breadth makes sense. And so I ask you this because as a professional athlete, I have to imagine there's many things that uh, in that role that have led you to be successful professionally. I'm just interested, what synergies have you seen there? What are some things that being a professional athlete has translated and made you a better leader, better founder, CEO? Yeah, I think there's, I don't, without getting too cliched about it, like there's lots of cliches, like people love kind of, you know, goal orientated and all that kind of stuff. But I kind of, I think for me specifically, the things, I mean, everything for me really comes down to self-awareness. I think that is any any high-performing individual actually understands themselves and understands why their performance is good, why it's bad, what they need to do, how accountable they are. Um, and it's it's interesting, like coming out of sport and moving into business is like the lack of self-awareness in a lot of people is quite astonishing in comparison to in sport. Um, you know, if you if you don't have any if you have lots of self-awareness in sport, you'd often not have a lot of ego. You know, you're kind of, you're honest with yourself. You're, you're not kidding yourself. You don't take yourself too seriously. You understand, particularly in a team sport like rugby, that you can't do anything on your own, you know? Like, whereas if you don't have that self-awareness, it, it's all you, you know, you're the you're the man, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think everything comes down to that. And I think there's loads of stuff within that in terms of running a business is you, you take feedback for what it is, for example, you know? Like, it's not a personal attack on you. It's just, okay, that's information. It's data I can use. And I think as an athlete, as you get given that every, you know, we're playing on a Saturday, Monday morning, straight in video session, 
you're just tearing your game apart to get better the next week on on that cycle. So yeah, I think loads of that kind of stuff and and also resilience. Like you never have a sporting career where nothing goes wrong. And I think in business, how you deal with pressure, setbacks, you know, it does breed a bit, you know, it does breed resilience um, as well. So I guess they're kind of cliche things as well, but they're the things I kind of think, you know, certainly those stand out in terms of what I've taken and why I think that's valuable in in a business like ours and a people business. Yeah, I love that. And so listen, I'm, I'm going to jump a little bit to hiring right now because I want to ask a question. Self-awareness is something, feedback is really big in our organization and our culture. So that's something that we definitely share there. Resilience is absolutely something that we talk a lot about in our organization in terms of overcoming adversity. But I really want to point in on the self-awareness. When you're interviewing people, do you have any questions or do you have anything that comes to mind that you can kind of try to identify their self-awareness? Is it just kind of keeping track of cues or anything that, that, that you do to try to determine somebody's level of self-awareness when you're interviewing them? You know what? It's just simple things. Like if, if somebody doesn't know the answer to something, like they're not trying to bluff their way through and they'll just tell you. Because if you've got the right level of self-awareness, and this is just one example, like if you've got the, the right amount of self-awareness, you'll know that the interview probably won't ride or die on that on that one question, right? It's about how you approach everything. Um, so yeah, always trying to look for it. I, th- I don't think you see a lot of ego. You, you see people that understand they're going to be entering an organization and that they're going to be, you know, a key player, but it's not just about them. And they kind of understand the bigger picture. I, you know, I think there's questions and, and kind of techniques that can draw that kind of stuff out, I think's super, super valuable. Um, and that, you know, it's just a bit of vulnerability, isn't it? If you don't know something, say it. It also flip side, if if you think you're particularly good at something, like just say it and and yeah. say it in a way that isn't arrogant, you know, just just shows that you understand yourself. Um because yeah, it's just this huge asset that it's just a surprising amount of people I don't think have a massive high level of it. You're, you're right. Like I mean somebody who really lacks self-awareness, you know within a few minutes of meeting them, there's just like little cues there. I'm gonna give a little bit of a tip here and a little bit of secret sauce because I really look for self-awareness and there's a question that I love to ask and I'm not going to take credit for this. I want to tell you how this came about. So Danny Mayer, famous restaurateur, um, he, he talks about something called enlightened hospitality. So whenever you go to one of his restaurants, the way they remember you, the way they take care of conflict and issues, the way that they you know make you feel at home is renowned across all restaurants. It's like, it's incredible, incredible, incredible. And so I actually wanted to figure out how do I uh, attribute this into my organization after experiencing it myself. And so I actually reached out to him and I got in contact with his COO, Richard Corain. And I was talking to Richard around, you know what, I want to make people feel that enlightened hospitality experience when they're working with us around recruitment or services, consulting, software, whatever it may be. I think there's a lot of practical things you can take out of that. Um, to make a wow experience for customers because that's really key in, in, in any business, but particularly ours. And so we were talking about how they hire, and he, and he said self-awareness. And so I asked him the same question I asked you. I said, well, how do you determine that? Is that just, you're just looking for cues? And he goes, no, I have a favorite question I ask, and, and it works pretty well. I go, what is it? He said, I asked somebody, what's a common misperception of you, and tell me who the real you is? And I absolutely love it. I use it in an interview today. I use it in all my interviews going forward because it really does lean into, well, are you aware of what people perceive about you? And can you state it? And then can you tell us what kind of the real you is? So Jeff, I'm actually, let's do it right now. What's a common misperception of you and what's the real you? 
I love it. I think, uh, oh, such a good question. I, yeah, I absolutely love the question. Steal it, uh, please. Let, me, let me have a think. You put me on the spot. Um, I don't know. I think like maybe not as much anymore, but I think certainly when I was still a full-time athlete is like, I think a perception might have been arrogance just in terms of like how you carry yourself. Right. Uh, and I, and I think at the time back then, like maybe there was a little bit of false confidence perhaps, you know, which may present itself as arrogance. Whereas now these days I just don't really care uh, in terms of like other people's perception of me necessarily. Um, and-, and you have to have a level of confidence to get to that level of sport too. Like you, you have to have an iron belief in yourself. I think there's self, yeah, self-belief, but I, th- I think in terms of how people perceive that, you know, maybe in the past, you know, and again, if you're not as confident, you don't have the self-belief and you look at something that's very different to you. Um, yeah. Like maybe you come across a little bit arrogant. Yeah. I'll, I'll actually answer the question myself. So as I sit here and drink a Celsius, I have a lot of energy and I'm really passionate about what I do. I, I think one of my highest qualities is I'm very authentic, but when you first meet me, um, my personality comes out. I'm an extrovert. I like to be around people. And gosh, if you get me talking about my company and what we do, I'm like super excited about it. And I think that's there's a lot of founders like that, but maybe I take it to a little bit of a higher level. And I think sometimes, and I've, I've really worked on this, I think some people think that I, I come across as I'm always selling, right? Um, or that you know I'm a little bit too polished or a little bit too prepared. Um, I care about relationships. I put time and thought into them. I try to be intentional about it. But I actually think selling, right, the word selling, that's a word that a lot of people run, run from, from a stigma. I, I really am just actually very passionate about what I do, and it, it comes out in me. And so I think that I've had to learn how to tone that down because I think when I meet people for the first time, it's like, oh, my gosh, like this guy is like very excited to talk about everything that's important to him. And as you get to know me better, then you start to see, oh, that's just kind of like he's like that about sports. He's like that about his family. He's like that about great food. Like I'm just a passionate person. Like I get energetic and excited, and I have opinions on things. So – that's a common misperception to me. So listen, we got to put that out on the table, both of us. Definitely use that question. And now if anybody's interviewing at MSH, they're going to know I asked that question and they're going to use that against me. But that's okay. At least that means they're doing their research, which matters to me. Um, I want to ask you, you talked a little bit about athletes who are looking to get into the professional world. Maybe they get injured. Maybe they get to a point where they hit a ceiling in their career. How... Did this become, is this, is this like a, uh, it can be a completely altruistic endeavor because I'm sure that you want to bring in these types of people into your organization, but like, how did you get involved with kind of wanting to pursue that channel and how do you go about specifically sourcing and identifying people in that space, former athletes that maybe can work for you or maybe help get back into the workforce in general? You know what? It, like it is actually a completely altruistic, like it's, it's not, it's nothing really to do with Bill Visible. So I just, um, it's just a passion of mine. And I think it's like, you know, you work hard, don't you, to be able to free yourself up to pursue other things as well. And this is a kind of thing that gives me real energy, like outside of the day job. So, um, yeah, honestly, it's just a bit of a passion of mine. And I've got so many ex-colleagues and, and friends in in rugby that, um, I, you know, I can see them, well, not them necessarily, but lots of people in the sport. Rugby is a very financially unstable environment as well. So, like, a club has just gone over this week, just gone under this week financially. So, overnight you got like 40 blokes out of a job um and that happens a lot and obviously it can happen with injuries and i just think there's so much potential in these people like that's honestly what it is and like i said i, I always say to people i'm kind of i think i was blessed by mediocrity that like the fact that i realized i wasn't quite good enough at the age i did and made the conscious decision to move away from the sport take it a bit less, a bit less seriously and build a career was like honestly 
a saving grace because otherwise I could have carried on till I was like mid thirties chasing a dream that was never going to happen. Um, whereas I got to take everything I learned in sport about team environments, community performance, and try and apply it to a to a business. So, um, yeah, it is genuinely a passion project with my sister. Okay, no, I, I, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I didn't realize that you were, you were taking such an endeavor with that. I love that. I do think it's something that's super important. Our company works with um, veterans that are want to get back to work, right? We A lot of times when we look at people who have taken sabbaticals or moms coming off of, you know, raising a couple of kids and wanting to get back to work, that is one of the most important things you can do is open doors and create channels for people that, you know, let's be honest, sometimes there's gonna be generalizations made. Sometimes they're gonna say, well, you don't have the skills I need, but we all know that you can train for aptitude. You can't train for attitude. And a lot of the different, you know, being a mother, you know, you know, being in, a, in the military, being an athlete, there's a lot of great professional characteristics that come out of all of those things that'll really help you excel in your work, right? So I think that's a really, really important thing. I totally admire that. I wanna go back real quickly, and I'm sorry if I'm so fascinated with rugby, but I'm just thinking about it through the context of, um, I love American sports, right? Our football, right? Basketball, baseball. Um, I've been playing these since a kid. I've watched, you know, all the time. I'm, I have my favorite teams, all that good stuff. I'm also a big fan of the EPL, right? So I love Liverpool, and I've actually been out to Anfield. I'm interested. Is the rugby league similar like that in that you have a bunch of lower division leagues, and they kind of start as beer leagues, and then you can move your way up into like the top level professional league? Is it the exact same structure? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, think of it like football, but there's just not the money. So like when I was a full-time athlete, for example, like the annual salaries we would get was was what the same was what the football team, the soccer team in the same city, they were getting paid a week. We would be paid a year. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a good measure of like the difference financially in um, you know, in the in you know, between the sports. But yeah, you can go in at different levels. Top level is fully professional, full time. The second level is a few full time teams, a full a few part time teams, semi professional, and then below that you go to semi professional, and then it just gets more and more amateur as you go down. Um, so yeah, similar to football, soccer basically. Okay, la- last rugby question: What do you like? Like here in America, like pickleball is taking off, and ultimate frisbee was something for a little while. Like it's almost like we're just like running out of ideas for sports that we can monetize and 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 turn into big professional leagues. What does rugby need to do to be, you know, more monetized, like like more accessible on TV? Like, is there something in the sport, like in its rules that make it more difficult to translate? Or what do you think, what would you do if you were the commissioner of world rugby? Oh, God, that's a question. I mean, it's a very inaccessible sport and it's a very elitist sport. So you have lots of people that went to private school. I didn't, but, you know, most of the people that play in the top leagues probably had a private education. Uh, it's a complicated game. Um, it's funny in, in the US, so uh, I'm good friends with the, um, the the USA Sevens coach, so seven-a-side rugby, um, shortened version of the game, so same pitch, seven-a-side seven instead of 15, seven-minute halves, super quick, super fast, and the US have just qualified, or I think they're on the way to qualify for the Olympics, and they did really well last Olympics. So as a gateway, I think that's what can get rugby a little bit more prolific in the US, and equally you guys do have a professional league in 15s in the full version of the game. Um, which is a great option for a load of guys sort of over here that, um, you know, want a bit of a change of scenery, you know, go and li- live the life in San Diego or wherever and, um, yeah, play a bit of rugby. So I, I think it's just, yeah, bit, it's a bit inaccessible. It's a bit complicated. You know, I know what you Americans are like is you don't, you don't like things that can draw either and you can draw a rugby match. Yeah, we, we're not much for ties. But listen, uh, your football, our soccer has made – gigantic leaps over the last 15 to 20 years out here. And I know why. The EPL, right? 
I know that they started putting it on NBC and US TV over the last five to 10 years. Obviously, like the World Cup generates so much interest. That's what happened to me. In 2014, I was watching the World Cup. I enjoyed it. I'm cheering for the US. But I'm noticing all these players on the Belgium team. And I'm like, wow, these guys are really good. We played them. And then I started following. Oh, this guy plays in the Bundesliga. This guy plays in the EPL. And I started following it. And then, of course, the FIFA video game you know, came out. And that was something that was exciting and interesting, too. So I just think that there's wonderful opportunity there. I'm sorry. Thank you for letting me pick your brain on rugby. Um, but, but really awesome stuff there. And very cool that you were professionally involved. Let's get into the hiring. Because outside of, obviously, sports, that is something that I love and something that I know you've done a lot of in your career. So I wanted to ask you, let's start here. When you're interviewing anybody, whether it be for your team or your company overall, do you have an overall hiring philosophy that you try to adhere to in terms of what you're looking for out of a person? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to go as grandiose as having a philosophy about it, but like in terms of like what's important to me, um, I think you just said it a minute ago. In terms of like aptitude and attitude, is like we we do SEO, we do data, we create content for brands. Like you can't go and necessarily get a degree in that, even if you have a marketing degree. What we do is so specialized that we have to train people to to do what we do. Um, and we have various bits and pieces around to do that. So for me, if I'm hiring, especially into senior roles, it's all about the cultural fit that that person's going to gonna add, you know? Um, so, you know, things like, like we have a phrase here, like me before, uh, sorry, we before me. Uh, so, you know, it's someone's ability to understand like they're part of something a bit bigger than themselves. Um, you know, testing for resilience, testing for pressure, like agencies are high pressure environment um so you know someone's ability to to contextualize those for what they are and prove that they can handle that is really really important and i think for more junior people which i don't get involved in as much anymore like again it's just someone who doesn't have an ego you know they're open to new ideas they're honest with themselves they're um certainly self-starting and entrepreneurial is you kind of want you want those types of people in your business because you know my job as an owner is to just build a framework to allow people to explore, you know, and bring what they bring to the organization. I can't go and tell everyone what to do. So I need everyone to understand where they fit, what their role is, what they're there, what their, their USP is, how they add value, and just explore that framework and make of it whatever they want, you know, whereas, but you can't do that unless you kind of have that get up and go, self-starting, bit of bit of entrepreneurialism, bit of willing to try and fail. Um so yeah, that's and, and that's a cultural thing, isn't it? You know, that kind of getting the right people in, you're feeding a culture. Um, and so you want people to be able to add something to that to that culture. So it's that Yeah, I really love that. One of the, the the biggest compliments I get on our process and what we do is that the first two interviews you go through at MSH are all cultural. Like they're not even asking about your resume, your experience. It's all what motivates you, what's important to you, what are kind of your key behavioral attributes. And then we start to talk about, okay, well, what can you do from a sales perspective or what can you do from a recruitment perspective or a software build-out perspective? And so, yeah, it's really, really important because if you can't even get past those two cultural interviews, then it doesn't matter how great of a salesperson you are. It doesn't matter how technical and amazing you are. Um, and that, I've had a lot of great feedback from candidates. I've asked them what stands out about our process and invariably they say that. Um, let's talk about memorable interviews. Either you've been interviewing somebody or somebody interviewing you. In fact, it could be back when you were doing professional rugby, if you want to. What comes to mind when I ask you for a memorable interview experience? Yeah, I, it's weird because I haven't had that many, you know, because I've been, you know, I transitioned out of sport. I did a couple of jobs and then I joined Bill Visible at the time. Uh, and so I haven't had that many interviews myself. So, but in terms of like, you know, well, I, I guess there's one that stands out, which is when I, 
became a full-time rugby player is the way that happened is I had an agent and he kind of managed that for me. And the way it would work is you would send footage, right? So you send game tape, you know, to coaches around different leagues and see if they like the look of you. And I remember like, I basically got hired uh, in a, in a service station, like on a, on a motorway halfway to Plymouth in Devon, sort of in our world, in, in UK terms, like quite far away from where I live. So we sort of <laughs> drove, drove two hours, sat, sat in a motorway services, a, you know, grimy, you know, no offense to anyone in Bristol, but service station in Bristol. Um, and just had a bit of a chat with the coach. He had seen my footage and I sort of left there. didn't know really what to make of it. And then, um, yeah, a few days later, contract offer. And then I went and lived down there for two years. And so that, I mean, that's just the shambolic nature of rugby, I think. But that that was literally the hiring process was a bit of game tape, a meeting in a in a in a lay-by. And then that was, it. that was it. You must have said something that resonated with him. You got the offer, right? So I mean, I, I drove, my dad drove me down there. That's how, you know, that's how long ago it was. And it was kind of a, yeah, just, a, I don't think many people go to job interviews with their, with their parents, you know, um, not after they're kind of 16, you know, looking for a part-time job. So um, yeah, it's probably the most memorable one because I haven't had too many others, but I mean, it's a bit of a weird way to get hired anyway, you know. For sure. For sure. For anybody, any of our early in career, for any of our early in career talent listening, maybe bring mom and dad to the interview. Maybe that's the way that you get the offer that you're waiting on. Uh, what do you have a favorite question that you like to ask in your interviews? Yeah, I again, it's like trying to understand that cultural fit is a big one. So, like one of the ones I really enjoy, you just get such. I thought it's, it's one of them. I think reveals something about a person. But we always ask someone what they would do to organize a social event at Built Visible. So, so I love that question because it, what it does is again, it just gets someone to think about you know, all of the different components of it. And if you're, you know, and it's such a broad spectrum because you've got to think about, you know, when is it? Uh, and also the questions they're going to ask you off the back of it. So when's this happening? How much money have I got to spend on it? You've got to work out how can you make it inclusive for everyone, make it super fun? How can it bring everyone together? There's so much scope within it where, and and sort of depending on the role, it's like you just get some fascinating questions back. So, um, and you also just get an understanding of whether it's going to be, you know, be any fun or not. Um, you know, I've had some mad answers to that question, uh, which kind of said a lot, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's that's what I like because it just reveals something about someone, you know, like this beyond the CV. Because, um, you know, everyone has to put like, oh, like, you know, you put your hobbies on there, don't you? Or, you know, people put sort of outside of work, I enjoy X, Y, Z. It's like, what are you going to put on there that's a bit risque? Whereas, you know, planning a social can get a bit naughty. Sure, you're going to find out a lot about somebody. There's no question about that. I like that. It's a good situational question, but not like, you know, how many pizzas have been ordered in the state of Florida, right? And you're really trying to get the, you, yeah, th those situational questions I'm not a big fan of. Yeah, it's just, what does that tell you about someone? You know, like it may tell you about all their logic and their reasoning or their understanding of the pizza industry in that state, but like it doesn't really tell you about who they are. Um, so, yeah. And also, like, obviously, a big part of, running a business is like, I always, like one of my big phrases is like, we're not packing parachutes. Like we're not here. It's not life or death. You know, you, you've got to enjoy what you do as you do it. There's no point in thinking, oh, that, that when I get this, I'll be happy. When I get this, I'll be happy. It's all ridiculous. You've got to enjoy what you're doing while you do it. And an agency environment, digital agencies are like amazing for, for having a great time. Um, sometimes, you know, they have a bit of a bad rep for having too good a time, but um, you know, that's all a big part of it. And so you want, 
you know, you want people to buy into that from the off. So yeah, I love that question. Jackie, do me a favor. On my next trip to London, make sure I visit Built Visible and Jeff. I just want to make sure. I'll, I'll tell them what kind of social event I have in mind. We'll see if I pass the test. Just, we'll just transfer you a budget and then you just make it happen. That's oh yeah, the, I'm uh, all in. Yeah, as yeah, long yeah, as yeah, we're yeah, not partying yeah. in Bristol. I want to keep it to, to North <laughs> London. <laughs> Bristol's a good night out. It's just not that service station. Like, I want to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. So when you miss on somebody that you hired and we all miss, I'm going to guess it's going to go back to the cultural aspect, but is there some, is there a theme there? Is there something that you wish you would have done differently or maybe something that's been kind of a consistent theme when you, when you hire the wrong person that you didn't do X? Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's the issue with that is that everything's, you know, hindsight's 2020, isn't it? Sure. You know, you always can see it, you know, see the wood for the trees. I think the, the danger of it, and I think some of the lessons we've learned previously is like it's not just the hire that's the issue. It's everything that then waterfalls and cas cascades from that one point. So if you bring someone in, uh, you know, at a team level or, or in any kind of leadership roles, it, you got, and and it, they might be the right thing at the time and then maybe it evolves over time and goes south. But um, it that is really hard to unpick you know it's not just about having to unpick one thing it's everything else that was associated with it and so kind of testing for that it's just one of those things i think you learn as you go in terms of you know why did that all go wrong and what was the knock-on and the compound effect of that like how do you get to the source of that um and again it rarely comes down to how good someone is like it rarely comes down to how good someone's cv is it's probably the way i'd describe it um you know obvious things like have you hiring for people that have done the things you're looking for before, like absolutely. But it's all about like the character. It's all about their approach, their resilience, how they deal with when the pressure does come on, which is inevitable. Um, so yeah, it's a hard one because you always look back and you're like, oh, well, that was a terrible idea. But yeah. it wasn't at the time and you made the decision. So, you know, there must've been something in it. I think it's a really good call out on your part because, you know, like you said, when something doesn't work out, your 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 natural instinct is to go back to the beginning and, Think about what kind of red flag you missed, but you're right. It could be a bad onboarding experience. It could be something changed in their life. It could be they went on the wrong team with the wrong leader. It could be your organization changed, right? And so, like, the expectations changed. So there's a lot of things when things don't work out that you can attribute it to, not just the hiring process. I think the, um, I think the, way, the, the way I look at it is, like, I, I was talking to someone the other day, and I was like, the, ish, the thing is, like, we're an independent agency, right? So I own the business, we don't have like a load of shareholders. We don't have private equity. We don't have a group that owns us. You know, it's on us, right? And and I think ultimately the way to think about such things is like essentially it's my fault. That's the way I kind of look at it. And by extension, it's my senior leadership team's fault. And you know, sometimes I think you bring people in, and and yeah, like ultimately somewhere you won't have given the right brief. You won't have given the right direction, the right strategy, the right support as well as the individual. I don't think it's ever a hundred percent. Um, and even by hiring someone, making an incorrect hire is like, that's on whoever hired them. Right. So it's not like this person's fault. It's on them. Uh, I think sometimes, yeah, you gotta look at yourself. And again, those learnings, those learnings have to always come back to the, the management of the company, the leadership of the company, because they're making, they're calling the shots. Right. So, so you're spot on about that. I tell our managers all the time, especially if they complain about a hire within the first six months, right. And something's going wrong. I immediately stop them in their tracks and say, well, hold on. You did one of two things wrong here. Either you hired the wrong person or you're not managing them effectively enough to get the most out of them. So which one is it? Do we got to fix your management or we got to fix your hiring aptitude? Because this isn't on them, right? Especially this early on in the game. 
And I think that has changed our managers' mindsets on A, being very diligent about who they hire, and then B, looking inward first and figuring out, let me control the things I can control. What am I not doing? Where am I letting things down? And to your point, that floats up to the top. And that's the way I look at it too. Even if something happens bad at the lowest level of the company, I'm always looking about where was my impact here? What could I have done differently? How could I have been more proactive? What was a message I didn't hit hard enough? And I think that's the only way that you continue to grow and get better, not only as a company, but as a leader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many people that you, you can look at it. There's loads of people on LinkedIn who will sort of, you know, self-flagellate. Oh, I made this mistake. It's like, well, yeah, they, no one cares, really. It's like, you know, I just think it's um, everything always comes down to a communication and it comes down to a lack of alignment. And you, I don't think it ever, it's very, very rare in life that someone is 100% to blame for something, is the way I probably put it. Very much not ever the case. There's always a blame pie. And you can always figure out there's a bunch of people. And there's always usually at least a sliver that belongs back at you. So I think that's really good advice and really smart. Let me ask you one more thing on the hiring side. So from a technology perspective, um, anything you do, like when you're sitting in front of somebody, are you taking notes, handwritten? Are you typing into a, an applicant tracking system? Are you using a workday type enterprise tool? How do you kind of like, what's the technology you use to help you hire? Yeah, so we, we use an ATS so uh, to, to kind of house everything. Um, the way I'd say like the bulk of what we have. So we built a thing, again, back to that point around you can't, uh, you know, you can't get a degree in what we do and we have to kind of train people as we built um, a career, like our own sort of proprietary career development framework called Career Architect that helps people plan not just their progression and build visible, but kind of helps them give a stepping stone. Okay, where's your career going? How can we help you get where you want to get to in your career, whether it's with us or with someone else and so that that underpins everything that we do when it comes to hiring in terms of you know the, the questions are all standardized as well everyone's uh, everyone's assessed against you know competencies mindsets and with dei like we're huge on dei as well in terms of making sure that our applicant base is as diverse as possible and again we lean on all of the information in career architect to take any personal information out of that process at all so that we're only ever assessing against the predefined competencies of you know, the business actually requires. Um, so we lean like super heavily on that. Um, it's a little bit clunky. We haven't like quite got it into a technology platform yet. We're looking at migrating ATS, but um, yeah, we, we do all of that stuff again, because it just makes, it makes being fair and having thorough processes, you know, like a, an achievable thing. Whereas I think there's still a lot of, you know, hiring off network goes on in our world a lot, which, you know, by all means feed those people into the system, but, they can't have an advantage in hiring processes in my in my mind. So yeah, we do a lot to try and combat that really. Um, I love that. I think it's really important to ha understand people's development tracks. It's important to understand the skills they need today to get the jobs they want them tomorrow. That's a big way to manage your, any type of attrition you might have and keep people engaged and focus on their work. I noticed how excited you were talking about that, but you just glossed over the ATS. It doesn't sound like the ATS is exciting you as much. Just entering the data in there, not very fun. I, I hate ours, which is the issue. So they'll re they'll remain nameless, and I'm trying to move it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically, I just want something that does like that that does what I want with with uh, Career Architect. And the problem was we had the ATS first, then we built then we built Career Architect. Now what we need to look at is we've got Career Architect. How do we get a piece of software and a, a technology that sits over the top of it and, and makes it work, brings it to life for us? So you're not the only one. I've I've, I've heard more. I've heard more than my fair share of that. All right, awesome. So let's 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 take a little bit of a step back. Let's go back into the world of Built Visible, your role. So a lot of times I ask people, what's a day in the life like 
for you and your role as CEO. But I always hear a lot about meetings and, and, and we all got meetings. So here's where I want to take this. When you have a day, when you get home and you're like, man, I had a really productive day. I'm really happy with how that day went. What typically happened that day? That's such a nice question. Um, yeah, because I always struggle with like, you know, people are like, what do you do? Like specifically, what do you do? It's like, it's hard. I, I don't know. So I love that framing of the question. I think like for me, it's just I've had a lot of small conversations. I think that's really important for me. So like the way I try and manage, I try and be how hands off. I want to empower people. I want to be super clear about where we're going, but how we get there is on them, you know? Um, and so if I've gone to work and I've had over the course of the day, like at least sort of five to eight small conversations, so like groups of four to six people or just one-to-one um, and not just with my team, but across the whole business, that I think is a good day for me. You know, I've got a, I've got a temperature check on, on how people are feeling, how they're performing. Um, I'll have had conversations that are about really important things that directionally secure our future or whatever. Um, and I, you know, I might have been a sales pitch with a, with a few people. So it's, yeah, I think a few small conversations is the way I'd kind of ask, answer that question. Cause I think that's what it gives you all the spidey senses to make good decisions, you know, uh, yeah. and not, not, not get detached from, from what's actually going on on the ground. I love that. Um, I totally agree. Like the, the the relationships, the connections I build with my employees, with our customers. It, this doesn't happen as often, but still, like the, the 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 highest adrenaline for me that only is the only thing I can replicate to when I was playing sports, not at a professional level, much much more in my youth, is going into a pitch, right? And and the feeling coming out of that meeting when you know you did really well or you know you really hit it out of the park. To me, that's like the business equivalent of you know winning a tournament or winning winning a winning a trophy, right? Like I always love that Now listen, sometimes you find out a few days later, yeah, we actually went in a different direction and that's not a great feeling. But that moment when you first walk out and you've got your team there and it's like we crushed that, we killed that, I'm constantly chasing that dopamine hit. Uh that that's something that I love and I kind of miss when I was a little more hands-on. Yeah, I think it's the uh like when you're an athlete, you know, like you, you win and lose all the time. So like like winning and losing is just an outcome. Like I think there's something to be said for when you're just in the flow, like when you're in a flow state, when you're in the zone. Yep. And that's just where, you know, there's like athletes always talk about it where, you know, time doesn't make any sense. You just, you're just at one with the situation you're in. And I think that's where, maybe that's why I'm saying small conversations. Cause I'm, I'm just in them, you know, there's nothing distracting. I'm just giving complete focus. Uh, you know, even speaking to the whole company and doing an all agency, it's like same thing, you know, you just get into a flow state, time becomes irrelevant you know you're not thinking about what you're doing you're just being um i think there's something in that um for sure and it's like that's that's what when you say that is like that's what i get from from you is you're just in that in that flow state you know I'm, i totally feel that way i'm always chasing to get into that flow state where everything slows down and you like you said you're just integrated with whatever you're doing some say that i get into a flow state in the podcast i'll leave that up to the listeners i'm not always sure um what are you working on right now that you're super excited about? What gets you out of bed, gets you juiced? Yeah, so we, um, it's good timing, actually, because we're, we're just about to launch like a whole new brand proposition. So, um, you know, we've we've kind of grown organically over 13 years. You know, fa- founder started it. I bought him out. We've got through a few sort of phases and evolutions of the company. And um, we're just about to sort of do something really different in our in our industry that kind of, you know, helps us punch up to the to the big guys um and just blow everyone else out of the water so like, i'm super pumped um we put a heap like so much effort into it um and it just what i love about it is it's 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 a piece of 
positioning, you know, sort of how do we sit in the market? What's our messaging and all that kind of stuff. But what it, what it really does is really flow through to the team in terms of everyone's understanding of why they're there, what they're there to do, give them the license to go and express themselves, bring their best every day. So yeah, it's like a really holistic piece of work. So um, yeah, I can't wait. We're having a big party October 18th um, in, in London to launch it all. Um, clients, staff, ex-staff, ex-clients, industry people. Um, so yeah, buzzing for that basically. I mean, there's ton of work to do before we get it live but like i'm excited about it so it's all good damn jeff we should have done this podcast a couple months ago i might have gotten an invite to this thing this sounds like it's gonna be a hell of a soiree i could have given you you the budget and you could have organized it so (laughs) (laughs) that would have been my interview question right then you would have known is this guy worth talking to um i love that i'm excited for you if we want to find out more about that come october 18th or post we go to your website or what's the best way to find out yeah, just buildvisible.com. It'll be all over there. I'll be talking about it everywhere on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, just out there in the industry. Um, yeah. It'll- cool, man. I love, there's nothing I love more than talking to founders about something they're excited about, something they're juiced about. It's like when people talk about their kids, and I got four of those, so I know how that goes. But man, when there's an initiative or there's been a lot of work put into something and you're getting ready to reveal it to the world, I know this with my software. It's, I, I'm the same way, man. I just, it's just, I get goosebumps thinking about it. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for the company. Um, all right, a couple more questions. Any good books you've been reading lately? Anyone you'd recommend for our listeners? Yeah, there's, there's, there's one that I, I found really, really interesting. Um, it's called Belonging by Owen Eastwood. So it's about, um, it kind of looks at kind of like the, the fundamental human need to belong. Mm. So it kind of looks at, you know, how societies sort of pass down sort of stories, senses of, belonging being um and looks at how that applies to kind of high performance in any in any kind of discipline so looking at obviously sporting teams like loads of references to the all blacks rugby um sort of you know in, into business and other sporting teams and it's yeah it, it's nothing groundbreaking but it just pulls together this you know this this theme and this topic so well and gives you loads of actionable things you can look at that kind of help galvanize a group and help them understand where they've been, where they're going. Um, which in any people business, you'll know, you know, it's like that is what will keep people sticking around. Um, and that's what keep people sort of feeling right. like they're part of something. So yeah, I recommend it to a lot of people at the moment. Belonging by, do you know the author's name? Owen Eastwood. Yeah. Owen yeah. Eastwood, it's, yeah. A, it's a great book. Yeah. 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 I, I take book recommendations almost too seriously. Like I almost go and buy them within seconds. So I will definitely be checking that out. That sounds awesome. Um, all right, last question before we wrap up. If you had to offer one bit of advice to a 20-year-old version of yourself, or maybe somebody who's listening who's early in their career, something you know now but you didn't know then, what would that be? Myself, I'd say don't play rugby because you'll avoid a lot of surgery. Um, <laughs> but no, I think like I, I think I, I say this to quite a lot of people. Like I just think the sooner you realize that everyone else is making it up like everything's better like the world is a, is a nicer place everything's fine uh you know there's a lot of people that you know are, are just making it up we're all making it up as we go along like it's rare that you know because you're doing what we do is like maybe yeah we might have owned a well i haven't but say someone's owned a business a couple of times before they're still making it up when they start a new business that's part of the fun and i think you know a lot of young people they they think there's a way of doing things and they think that they've got to kind of either fit in or they've got to toe the line or they've got to you know they they feel frustrated can't change what's around them but the reality is they can because there's no formula and i i kind of wish someone had said that to me when i was younger i was still kind of 
towing the line. I mean, I went and played rugby, which was great. Um, but even then is I could have done loads while I was playing rugby or, you know, I didn't have to fit into that. So yeah, I always, I say to everyone, like everyone's making it up when you drop the ego and realize that it's like, everything's lovely, basically. One thing we say here at MSH, that's a big cultural tenet of ours is that we take our work seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And I think one of the biggest motivating factors is when you realize that these people who are well off or wealthy or invented and created and done all these amazing things are not that dissimilar from you. In fact, they're quite a lot like you. And in some cases, maybe don't have the same advantages or maybe even more ignorant in certain ways than you are. So 100% you're right. And that can be, if once we drop those shackles and realize that, then the world becomes your oyster, right? And it's something that you can pursue with confidence because at the end of the day, confidence is so key. And you know what? It's not like we're packing parachutes out here. So you always got to remember that too, right? Exactly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, I love it. Jeff, I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time with me. I promise you when I come to London next time, probably to watch a, a football game, uh, we're going to get a pint and maybe a whiskey if you don't mind taking me out. A hundred percent. We're going to watch a rugby game as well. I'll talk you through it. Totally in. All right, man. I appreciate you being on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I've loved it. Cheers, Oz. Good job. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.